This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Opposition to agricultural reform gets a pretty wide airing in the media, often in reports featuring protests and lobby groups fighting farmers' corner against what they call unworkable regulations. But farming industry groups and many actual farmers also know that the environment is important and adaptation and compromise is critical, inevitable even, in the years ahead. This week we hear from the editor of Farmers Weekly, whose views on all this end up in the mailboxes of almost every farm in the land. Also this week, the Women's Rugby World Cup on home soil spread a lot of joy here, but the FIFA World Cup in Qatar caused outrage and anguish around the world well before this weekend's kickoff. Focus on the football, the organisers said, but human rights, workers' suffering and corruption can't really be ignored. But will they actually be highlighted by the media once the actual games get going? 40,000 packed into Eden Park. Three's free-to-air coverage of the game broke records, with 1.2 million New Zealanders watching. Crowds up in Taitokoro, 16,500 on the bank at Okata Park, amazing. And then the groundswell goes from there, and uh, 42,000 odd at Eden Park on Saturday night, just the culmination of a wonderful six weeks. It was sportscaster Scotty Stevenson last Monday on the Project Show on TV Channel 3, summing up the Women's Rugby World Cup final experience from his perspective as the TV anchorman of the most watched women's game ever in New Zealand. That's both from the stands and on the screen, free to air on 3 and the online streaming service for subscribers only, Spark Sport. Now, aside from it being a white-knuckle sporting spectacle, people are now also talking about the tournament as transformational for women's sport in this country and even for our wider society. But last Tuesday, the Women's Rugby World Cup organising committee boss Margaret Hooper told RNZ's Morning Report the mass audience that was delivered by free-to-air TV was crucial to the tournament's success. Uh, and I think that having at least having those finals matches on um, free-to-air and the delayed coverage during the tournament of the pool stage matches with the Blackburns at least meant that New Zealanders were able to watch, even if it was delayed, and at least having the final live um, has proved to be um, absolute necessity. But earlier on it was test matches splitting the TV audience that angered women's rugby advocates when New Zealand rugby carelessly created a clash by overlapping an All Blacks test with the Black Ferns quarter-final. And at the time, Cabinet Minister Kitty Allen took to Twitter to say this. For tips on how to plan a world standard women's World Cup, suggest you take some tips from FIFA, who set the standard last weekend with their draw. Now there, Kitty Allen was referring to the somewhat stodgy ceremony in Auckland recently, which decided who plays who when the FIFA Women's Football World Cup plays out here and in Australia next year, another landmark for women's sport in New Zealand. But those who follow the tortured politics of world football were well aware that its governing body, FIFA, is no ethical benchmark when it comes to handing out those tournaments. The FIFA World Cup for men, the world's single biggest sporting tournament, kicks off in Qatar in the early hours of Monday, but it's been controversial ever since FIFA picked the Gulf state as the host more than a decade ago. Now That decision brought about the downfall of FIFA's long-serving and notoriously self-serving president, Sepp Blatter, who this week called the whole thing a mistake. But almost every pundit and commentator has been saying that ever since this World Cup was awarded to a tiny territory that's clearly not suited to it, but one with an unlimited budget for boosting its global reputation. Indeed, critics are now calling this the world's costliest sports-washing exercise, even putting the Beijing Olympics in the shade, and some are even now comparing it to the Berlin Olympics 70 years earlier. Now, the PR budget for Qatar's World Cup includes millions for celebrity endorsements, 
like this one from former England captain turned showbiz superstar David Beckham. It's one of the best spice markets that I've ever been to. This is perfection for me. Qatar really is an incredible place to spend a few days on a stopover. I cannot wait to bring my children back. And Qatar is also covering the costs of entire squads of travelling World Cup fans from England, the Netherlands, Australia and other countries in return for glowing praise of Qatar posted on social media. But not everyone is so welcome to join in the fun. Same-sex relationships are illegal, so gay fans are effectively excluded or admitted on a don't-tell-don't-ask basis, contrary to FIFA's own anti-discrimination obligations. And that prompted comedian Joe Lysett, the host of The Great British Sewing Bee and the BBC's Travel Man Show, currently screening here on TBNZ, to give David Beckham this ultimatum. I'm giving you a choice. If you end your relationship with Qatar, I'll donate this 10 grand of my own money, that's a grand for every million you're reportedly getting, to charities that support queer people in football. However, if you do not, at midday next Sunday, I will throw this money into a shredder just before the opening ceremony of the World Cup and stream it live on a website I've registered called benderslikebeckham.com. Not just the money, but also your status as a gay icon will be shredded. Well, hours from kickoff, it does look like that cash will indeed be shredded. But that's not the only human rights problem for the Qatar World Cup. FIFA has denied some teams permission to wear pro-human rights slogans. And while sportswear manufacturers usually pay handsomely to turn a nation's players into human billboards for their product, Denmark's supplier Hummel has removed its logo from the Danish kit in order to preserve its reputation. Now, the most direct response so far to all this has come from Australia's footballers at the World Cup. 16 players took part in the video message calling on the host nation to decriminalise same-sex relationships and to help any migrant workers who've been denied their rights. Football Australia followed the statement with its own, saying the suffering felt by workers and their families could not be ignored. Let's hear some of that powerful message now from the players. It's just been released this morning. We have learned that progress has been made both on paper and in practice. The kafala system has largely been dismantled, working conditions have improved and a minimum wage has been established. Whilst the reforms established in Qatar are an important and welcome step, their implementation remains inconsistent and requires improvement. We have learned that the decision to host the World Cup in Qatar has resulted in the suffering and in the harm of countless of our fellow workers. These migrant workers who have suffered are not just numbers. Like the migrants that have shaped our country and our football, they possess the same courage and determination to build a better life. Around 6,000 migrant workers are estimated to have died building the stadiums in Qatar under appalling conditions, and many thousands more were employed under the kafala system which bound them to the employers who sponsored their visas. But as media began to arrive in Qatar this past week, FIFA's top brass told all nations taking part this... We try to respect all opinions and beliefs without handing out moral lessons to the rest of the world. Please, let's now focus on the football. And that poses a bit of a dilemma for the media too. Does looking forward to the World Cup make me a bad person? News Talk ZB sportscaster Jason Pine asked himself in a New Zealand Herald article on Thursday, concluding that he wouldn't turn away from the beautiful game, even though it was being played in what he called the ugliest of theatres. Meanwhile, his ZB sports colleague Darcy Waldegrave was posing a similar question on air last Thursday. I'm a Formula One fan. I love Formula One. 
seeing Formula One in Saudi Arabia, seeing in Abu Dhabi, seeing it in Russia. And then if you look, are we putting our Western morals and values on a country? Do we have a right to do that? United States of America is pretty morally corrupt. They're telling women what to do with their bodies. You can't have an abortion in most places. They overturned that, what was it, the Roe Wade decision. All of these states now, it's illegal to have an abortion. Man, if that's not morally corrupt, I don't know what is. Do I stop watching the NBA? Where do I end? Look, I could get confused. I could go on ranting and screaming and raving for half an hour, but no one wants to hear that. The front person for the BBC's comprehensive TV coverage, respected former striker Gary Lineker, has told other media its coverage won't just be focused on the football. And I'm sure we'll discuss the issues of of human rights, of homophobia, of the problems with the stadiums and the lives lost in, in workers' rights, etc. It's awful. But yes, we will be obviously covering that. Gary Lineker also told the News Agents podcast there were no red lines and no one at the BBC, FIFA or Qatar has told him what not to say on the air. Now, New Zealand football fans won't be able to focus on our football team. They fell short in a one-off playoff in Qatar back in June. But New Zealand sports reporter Kern Lammers was there, and now he's back in Qatar reporting for RNZ and other outlets on the main event now getting underway. Back in June, he pointed out on RNZ's website that the last two World Cup tournaments in Brazil and in Russia also had problems with corruption and organisation, and he said... Qatar will no doubt be different to previous events. And, judging by those experiences, that could in fact be a good thing. But while Kern Lammers mentioned the culture clash about alcohol for sale in Doha, he made no mention of the suffering and deaths amongst migrant labour or those oppressive laws curtailing human rights and press freedom. So, just before he set off for Qatar this week, I asked will that be part of the picture for him and his coverage and who will call the shots in Qatar over what we see in our media. Certain media, especially certain European media who are more news-focused than sports-focused will continue to look for those sideline stories because the big media outlets will have several crews there, BBC or uh, you know, uh, German, French, Dutch TV. They'll be there with you know, multiple news crews. Yeah, and some outlets, for example, The Guardian has the section cut up beyond the football, which they're embedding right into their actual uh, sports coverage. It's the preview stuff at the moment. You know, throughout the tournament, when the game's going on, anyone browsing the section will see that stuff as well. Uh, do, you, do you think that's a good approach? Is that actually effective? Yeah, it's really interesting um, how sports fans approach this. I I mean, I, I, I talk to a lot of people who go to the World Cup from different countries around the world, and there's only a few. It seems to be mainly people in, in Scandinavia, Germany, and Holland who have taken a moral stand and said, oh, we're not going to Qatar. This is the first World Cup we're not going to because of what's going on there. But for the majority of uh, fans, you know, they'll acknowledge and be aware of of the issues in Qatar, how much that will influence their opinions or Further, how much that will influence their actions, I'm not sure. FIFA kind of controls the entire the zone around the stadium, all official, the accredited broadcasters and so on. Uh, it's like it really isn't taking place in the host country at all. It's kind of FIFA territory. Will that be the same in Qatar? Or given that <laughs> Qatar is spending so much, are they going to be controlling the access and will it be their uh, imperatives and their policies that hold sway over the actual venues? Well, the Qataris would be silly if they mess with it too much because FIFA has obviously developed a really slick machine. But from what we saw during the intercontinental playoff when when I was there for New Zealand and Costa Rica, 
it is a very different scenario from previous World Cups. The, the big difference that I've noticed is that Qataris don't seem to be that interested in impressing FIFA, whereas previous hosts fall over themselves to make sure that all the FIFA people are happy. So in the venues, um, the Qatari person who runs the stadium is definitely in charge. At times when the Qataris felt like it, they would change the FIFA rules and say, no, 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 we're not doing that. This is what we're going to do. Qatar's goal in doing this, the reason it's spending a reported 200 billion US dollars, uh, well, people call it sports washing, don't they? It's it's not just about running a successful sports event and hoping to get the benefits of that. This is a national project. It's something to make the country uh, look good and elevate it. I mean, a bit like uh, Russia in, in 2018. Yeah, it's, oh, it's, it's, it's very similar. And uh, the interesting thing was in Russia, uh, I went for the, the warm-up tournament, which is the Confederations Cup, where New Zealand played uh, against Russia. There were armored vehicles everywhere, checkpoints. You'd have uh, guys with machine guns, and uh, it was it really felt. And you arrived at the airport, and you got drilled by, uh, you know, by customs people. Um, and suddenly, when we came back a year later for the the World Cup proper, suddenly in uniform, there were only really handsome uh, looking uh, uh, soldiers or you know, uh, female soldiers, or they pretended to be soldiers. Basically, a bunch of top models at every security point. Everyone was much more welcoming, and it was a very, very different approach. So they had definitely tried their hardest to, you know, to be hospitable. And the Russians, when we went into the provinces, they constantly kept asking you, "Oh, yeah, are you being treated well? And are people looking after you?" They were really, yeah, aware that for the first time, a massive amount of people, a million people, were were roaming all over the country, basically without controls. And that's something that Russia never had to deal with. And then during the tournament, you felt that the authorities started to relax. Whereas what I've seen in Qatar. And the demands and the visas and uh, uh, the permits that you need in Qatar are way beyond anything I've seen in, in China or even in Russia. When when I was looking up your number to arrange the interview, I noted you know you've got your own operation, Lamis Consulting, and you say you know uh, for for the other work you do, I guess unrelated to sports, there's a great story behind every organisation. Let us tell that story. There will be people from Qatar looking and making sure or hoping, you know, in the output of yourself and other journalists, that there will be a positive image of Qatar coming out of it, as well as, you know, just what's going on on the pitch. At the moment, they're basically putting out a press release just about every day. And that this is from, you know, from uh, press releases about how welcome people are, the venues, the things you can do in Qatar. They had one this week around accessibility. So they had a big press conference with a whole lot of representatives from different disability uh, organizations in Qatar uh, celebrating that these stadiums will be the most accessible in the history of the World Cup. So they are trying really, really hard to uh, obviously sell their own country, which is what every country does when you when you host a World Cup. But what I've noticed is that a lot of the things that they're trying to promote are probably not of much interest to most foreign visitors. <laughs> Do you feel under uh, any yeah, pressure they... to write about it or include it in your in your reports? Or no, 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 no. You can no, just think no, of it. No, no, no. I have not seen any influence of any kind from from the Qataris. Yeah, you you wrote a um, you wrote a piece for the RNZ website about that, where you noted that the, their slogan in Qatar was "Expect Amazing." And when you were there in June for those intercontinental playoffs, which you know, as we know, unfortunately didn't work out well uh, for New Zealand. Um, yes, you wrote that piece, sort of setting the scene. I mean, back then you you mentioned like in passing that labour issues, but you didn't dwell on you know the the human rights aspects, the migrant workers. Do you feel under pressure not to mention those things or will you be wary of doing it when you're there? Um, if appropriate, there is absolutely no no reason not to not to do it. 
the yeah, it is it is you know within within the confines well, the confines of what you know uh, or what what you know, um, how much reporting I uh, will be doing from uh, from Qatar. There's obviously only so much scope. It basically depends on, for example, I'll be uh, I'll be talking to a morning report every uh, every day. Um, what the questions will be, and their questions will be about the games that are going on right there, because that's right in front of mind. And well, would you have example, an eye the... on what might develop though, if there are going to? I believe um, I think you mentioned to me that the Netherlands squad has said we want to go and meet some migrant workers. We want to get out of the bubble. Yeah. You know, the Netherlands players actually want to do that, which could be a bit of a media event in itself. So these things that are going on in the background, will you be able to have half an eye on some of that? Oh, totally, and, and it's pretty obvious. It's like when I was there in June. You know, it, it's hard not to. And I'm lucky that I'm staying with a Qatari local, so uh, he is. You know, he's been. It's, that's been really helpful as well to get some background information on you know how you know what's going on every day there. When we were there, it was 51 degrees. It was insanely hot, and seeing um, the mainly Nepalese, Bangladeshi, Indian workers, you know, getting bussed in from their from their worker villages on the outskirts of Doha in the morning, and then in the midday heat, they go back to their base and they eat and they sleep, and then they all come back about four o'clock in the afternoon, and they they do the rest of their shift. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to work out that that's you know, pretty insane. If you put it in the context, though, because I was talking to to a few locals about this, the comment that they made is it's the Qatari government under pressure from FIFA. FIFA have been doing a lot of work on this, and obviously the pressure from the international media and the international community uh, be doing a lot of work tidying up and, and creating minimum wage and tidying up their worker rights. It's not, I don't think, because they want to do it, but because there's so much pressure. But then the ability for them to enforce it to the companies. Because, for example, all the roading work in Doha that I could see were done by Indian contractors. They transfer what they, how they operate in India to Qatar. So I'm not entirely au fait with worker rights in India, but I don't think they'll be up the, up the standard of New Zealand or, or Europe. Uh, the Danish TV crew, I think, on their first day in the country this past week, you know, have found themselves in a bit of a story when a, a, perhaps an overzealous security guard, uh, you know, f- forbade them permission to film. Uh, I think even threatened to damage their camera at one point. No, 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 we don't need permit. Yeah. No, no, but but but, no, but listen, but listen, but, listen, but, listen, but you can break the camera. You want to yeah, break the camera? Okay, no, you break the camera. Okay. You, yes. So you're threatening us by by by, by smashing the camera. Uh, there's been an apology for that, but do you think that's a sort of thing we might see as the tournament goes on if, if uh, foreign crews try to do things outside of the bubble and possibly rub uh, local enforcement up the wrong way? I think there'll be hundreds of incidents like that. Uh, Michael Burgess from the New Zealand Herald and myself, we had an incident like that uh, in the stadium. We were we needed to work in the media room, and uh, you know, which is normally always open. But the Qataris had decided that it wasn't going to open until two days, two hours before the game, and we, we were all you know, we we're way out away from our our, um, our hotel, so we decided to stay in the stadium and work after a press conference. But then a soldier just stood in the hallway and decided, no, you can't come in. So then, um, oh, two um, of you couldn't you've taken them on? No, no bad idea. Well, could have, but then, the, but then, but then, there's an interesting dynamic then came to play. The Qatari, he had to ask the Qatari. The Qatari said, no, no, not happening. You just have to go away. You need to come back at seven o'clock or five o'clock, whatever it was. And then the FIFA person came past, so we we said, well, can you please talk to these people? We need to work there. It was literally like the door was open. It was five metres away from us. The FIFA person kindly asked the Qatari head of the stadium, and the Qatari said, no, nah, absolutely no way, black and white. And uh, we had to find ourselves somewhere else to work. And that was just a really tiny example, but I think this will happen over and over and over. For me, the closest thing that I can compare it to is, is the Beijing Olympics, which was very much like that. Some uh, absolutely 
illogical uh, decisions by a security guard or a commander of the police or, or a traffic officer who decides suddenly two kilometers from the stadium that he's going to block that road off and you all have to start w- walking, that's going to be happening in Qatar and that's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way, especially if you've got uh, 200 kilos of camera equipment with you. We're going to get a lot of that because media here, I, I used to just go anywhere and they film anywhere. But in, in the accreditation documents that everyone had to sign, there were quite clear instructions of, you know, that you needed permission to to film in a lot of public areas and a lot of uh, government buildings and government property, et cetera. I fear that they'll try and clamp down on that like they did with the Danes. So I think it's it'll be a really interesting space to watch. And the same with um, the fans, obviously, they you know, with the fans, they think they, they can control a million fans. Well, I think that will be really difficult. So um, they have brought in 4,000 riot police from Turkey, you know, who's their friendly friendly uh, ally in the region. If they're going to let them loose on, uh, you know, on a, on a horde of uh, half-intoxicated English fans, that could be a really interesting scenario. Sports reporter Kern Lammers there, who's now in Qatar covering his fifth FIFA World Cup for RNZ and for other outlets. The tournament gets underway in the early hours of Monday the 21st and runs until the week before Christmas. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we looked at New New Zealand Rebuilding Better, a New Zealand Herald initiative aiming to push back against short-term thinking and political tribalism as the country's economy rebuilds after COVID. And so do key industries like farming, where resistance to reform and regulation is often what we end up hearing about in our media. We're a, a, a com- country where uh, agriculture is completely central to our economy and farmers have a lot of power. And we've uh, got to hear these views. I mean, that's the thing. It's about, there, There's going to be a robust discussion. I think, yeah, and, and to, to, to what David's saying about underground voices, you know, if you, if you suppress what are people's reactions to things, you, you push people underground and you get to that kind of, um, you know, uh, New World Order, anti-vax kind of stuff. You know, you, you ha- when, the, when there is a large, uh, I don't want to make the joke, groundswell of... Uh, <laughs> I just made it <laughs> of opinion. You have to acknowledge that, especially on a farming show, or or if your audience is a relatively conservative audience who feels that way. New Zealand Herald editors David Rowe and Liam Dan there on Media Watch last week. Now farmers also got a jolt last week from Fonterra, whose top brass warned the farmers who own it they risk losing customers and facing trade barriers overseas if they don't meet sustainability expectations, including lower carbon emissions. Well, for Media Watch this week, Hayden Donnell now talks to another editor right in the middle of that debate, whose views end up in the mailboxes of just about every farmer in the country, including many who won't agree with them. What we want the city people here to know is that there's no scientific or moral case. So you've been taxed and driven off your farms. Because of methane are extremely limited in how they can impact... So we've got to stand up and fight against this for every reason. That's a farmer speaking at the latest groundswell protest held last month over the government's plan to tax farmers' emissions from 2025. His tone was in keeping with that of the so-called howl of a protest groundswell carried out in July 2021. These farmers are angry and this is how they decided to show it. We're getting sick of being bullied. We've had enough. We really have. If you've been monitoring the mainstream media, you could be forgiven for thinking these sorts of strident, sometimes angry views are the consensus across the farming community. 
That's certainly been the contention of commentators like Jamie Mackay of Newstalk ZB's The Country. In a column for The Herald headlined, Why this virtue-signalling government is so reviled by the rural sector, he pointed to a growing chasm between farmers and the government. The past two years have been the most divisive of my lifetime. We're all rowing in separate directions. I think it's called being up the creek without a paddle. It's worth noting, though, that Mackay later told Newstalk's Heather Duplessy Allen that the story's headline was a bit clickbaity. The clickbait headline is uh, why this virtue signalling government is so reviled by the rural sector. Not quite what I wrote, Heather. I said, would it be unkind to say that you've got to go back to the days of Longy and Rogernomics to find a government so reviled? by the rural sector. I asked a I th- question I feel like rather the than editors, made a statement. Yeah, I feel like the editors saw your actual meaning, though, and conveyed it in the headline, and, you know, you can't really complain about it. It was a great article, actually, I thought. Even so, no one reading his column could be under any illusions about the farming community's view. However, at least one rural publication has a different perspective. Farmers Weekly purports to go out to every farm in the country, all 80,000 of them, every week, and if you open up to the editorial page of its last few issues, you'll find lines like this. That's Farmers Weekly editor Brian Gibson warning about taking a strident, uncompromising approach to negotiations with the government. His measured tone stands in contrast to some of the rhetoric in the media. In another editorial, he acknowledges farmers' frustrations, saying a lot of them are justified, but then again makes a call for collaboration over conflict. How can we communicate with the people who we feel have misunderstood our purpose so they can help rather than hinder progress? It all comes back to groundwork, to having a sound foundation to build upon. This sort of nuanced take doesn't always make for a good headline, but it's worth asking whether Gibson is speaking for a sector of the rural community that doesn't exactly get top billing from our news outlets. And even if he's not, how is he fearing preaching peace and conciliation to the part of his audience that wants confrontation? I put those questions to him this week. I guess we just saw that there was a breakdown in communication between both the government and the farming sector and also farming industry leadership and the farming sector as well. And there seemed to be just two opposing points of view butting against each other with not a lot of room to um, meet in the middle. Why do you think that more aggressive approach is unproductive? If you oppose something and you um, don't have any um, room to negotiate on it and the other side is the same, then nothing is going to be resolved. Say, for example, in terms of emissions pricing, the government obviously wants emissions pricing and has put forward legislation to achieve that, worked out in conjunction with the sector, which was a pretty groundbreaking approach to take. Obviously, it's come back now with some um, government tweaks to it industry leadership has kind of you know said this is not what we signed up for but at the end of the day I think everyone wants to get a pricing system that works and that is manageable and that farmers can go forward with with confidence but at the moment we've got a lot of conflict 
at Fonterra's annual meeting, um, they signalled that they would be perhaps bringing in a um, emissions target for their suppliers. There's also the optics of the whole thing, you know what I mean? Um, the farming sector is in some ways seen as just opposed wholesale to dealing with the externalities of farming systems as a whole. And I don't think that's a great look. Because looking at the media coverage now, you get the impression farmers are angry, they've, they're fed up, they're not going to take it. Do you mm. think that that portrait of farmers' perspectives is a fair representation of the views in the wider farming community? It is certainly a fair view to a certain extent. I mean, farmers are business owners. There's a lot of fear that um, added cost changes to farming systems that are uh, forced from external forces is going to you know, upend what you've known and done for such a long time. We now find ourselves so far down the track, some groups in the farming sector can't see how it's going to work for them, and so that's where, where we get the anger from. It's interesting, you talk to 10 farmers, you, you get a range of opinion. We live in a world where um, it's quite easy to form a group on Facebook and sort of manufacture outrage and the algorithms push that along. And so I think society as a whole, as we've seen through COVID-19, has kind of brought us to a place where anger you know, gets you up the ladder in terms of reach. Have you received pushback from inside the farming community over your calls for compromise? Yeah, I have. Having said that, people involved in the media industry know you tend to get pushback on most things. What kind of pushback have you received? You know, you get people who obviously point out flaws in various pieces of legislation, you know, with the um, emissions pricing again, um, those sticking points are around counting of sequestration. Others just sort of have a more sort of tribal aspect to it, you know, you should be backing farmers. But um, I guess I'm more focused on the big picture. So I understand that the details need to be worked out and need to be right and need to give farmers a fair deal and a way to give them confidence that they can run profitable businesses. But on the other hand, the big picture, um, if you look at the way the world is going, um, the way markets are going overseas, the social license to farmers tracking, then this is just something I think for the good of farming needs to get over the line. We've been reporting for some time about the likes of um, Tesco and Nestle, Danone, Unilever, who are all big customers of our food products. And they have all signed up to net zero by 2050 or 2030 to protect their own brands and their own future businesses. As we sell our products to them, we need to be a part of that. I mean, you know, um, Groundswell have valid um, uh, opinions and valid problems. There's a reason Groundswell exists, and that's because the communication has not been good enough to take everyone on the journey. There are, in the farming, there are so many different types of farms, you know, different terrain, different um, uh, livestock um, mixes, different levels of debt, um, that sort of thing. People are at different ages and different stages of their careers, and so you get a lot of people with a lot of fear and confusion. Actually, Brian, in one of your editorials, you mentioned someone that wrote into you when you announced the winner of a Māori farming competition, criticising you for what they called separatist views. So, I mean, these are the kinds of things that you're having to deal with. There are parts of society that think, it's, I guess it's the, you know, the one person, one vote 
mentality that um, is in our political discourse a lot. And, you know, some people do take offence to there being competitions and that sort of thing and um, scholarships and programmes for, you know, Māori or other groups in New Zealand. Um, but that's just, I don't know. I mean, I... I Another thing that you told me earlier <laughs> was that when you write about how we need to negotiate with each other, you you get accused of uh, being farmers wokely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get that a little bit. Farmers wokely. The other one is farmers weekly with a EA. So <laughs> people just seem to be more angry in the last few years. COVID nineteen has a lot to do with it, but also social media has a lot to do with it too. Because to um, social media reach some people find that manufacturing outrage is a good way to do that we just need to change the narrative so everyone feels empowered by definition you know regulation is kind of an imposition if you can change the narrative on that to make it an opportunity um, because there are amazing opportunities for new zealand's food production sector to capitalize on the position it is in at the moment in terms of its sustainability um, compared to a lot of other big food producing nations in the world and that sometimes gets lost. That was Brian Gibson, the managing editor of Farmers Weekly or as he told Media Watch's Hayden Donnell there, Farmers Wokely to some of its critics among the nation's farmers who all get it for free every week in their mailbox. And finally this week, those who watch, listen and read the news in a range of outlets will know there's a small band of political pundits and commentators who are heavily used by the media these days, many of them leaning to, or with ties to, the political left or right. And among them was Shane Tapo, former trade unionist, Labour Party member and a workers' advocate, also a host on the urban Māori outlet Radio Wātea. But on that station recently, he told Wātea's Claudette Hawiti he'd decided to step back from the mic and from all his punditry. I'm about to um, diminish all of my mahi uh, in terms of uh, Māori um, punditry, commentary. I've got a promotion. I'm the CEO of our organisation. It's a private private entity, 180 star throughout the world, and I just want to focus on that and afi them and look after them. Shane Tapo went on to explain he's been appointed as chief executive of Mega, the cloud storage and encryption company founded by Kim.com and others about 15 years ago. Now, as one of the few Māori political commentators in the mainstream and Māori media circuits, he leaves a bit of a gap for the media to fill. Others, though, will surely step up, but how do you become one of these heavily used pundits in the first place? Last year, on the News Talk ZB weekend chat show Real Life, Shane Tapo told the host John Cowan... It was easier than he expected. Two, three years ago, I was complaining to Matt and he said, well, get off your backside and become a political commentator. So I rang up ZB and I said, are you interested? And they said, well, we don't know yeah, but we'll give you a crack. And I <laughs> I did uh, one stint on the um, Heather Duplessis Allen show and yeah. uh, took it from there. Yeah, well. so I work across the spectrum. Some people think it's my full-time job. It's not. It's just what I do. Well, now that Shane Tapo is focusing on his actual day job, anyone looking to fill the void he's left could just pick up the phone to ZB and see if they can get a trial with Heather Duplessis-Allen on the drive show. Best of luck to all contenders. 
Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend. We'll be back with more on the media after the 10 o'clock news on Wednesday night on Nights with Karen Hay for Midweek Media Watch. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.